Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 25th of September, Andy Wisdom taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andy looked at the doctrine of the church. Andy is currently doing a PhD in theology at Manchester University, and is also a regular speaker at School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. We're going to talk now about the doctrine of the church, um, or as it's otherwise known, ecclesiology, which are two very boring terms for God's great plan for what he's doing with his community worshipping him on earth. It's far more exciting uh, than it sounds. And the key questions that we're going to be asking for the next uh, just under an hour or so um, are what is the church for and what makes a church a church? Those are kind of big questions because this word church can mean a lot of different things, as we'll think about in just a moment. But I think this question of what makes a church a church and what does the church do and, and what is the church for? I think these are actually particularly uh, poignant and quite raw questions for us at the moment, particularly after all of us have in some way had to deal with changes in the way that we participate in and attend and perhaps even lead church over the last 18 months. Maybe you are emerging from the COVID era wondering whether we learned anything during this time about what's most important in church life, whether actually uh, the, the crisis that we had to deal with was kind of taught us anything about what is central to church. Anyway, we're not going to focus loads on that, but it's raw, isn't it? It's uh, a particularly pertinent question at the moment. But let's talk about the origins of this idea, this biblical idea, the church Jesus told Peter, and this is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament, if you're reading it start to finish, Jesus told Peter that he was going to build an ecclesia, uh, which is a, a Greek word meaning assembly or uh, a group of called out people. And of course, that word went on to mean church, and it's the word that Paul uses for church, and it's the word that Peter uses for church and that Revelation uses for church. Ecclesia, called out ones. And in the first 12 or so chapters of Acts, we see Peter and the other apostles do exactly what Jesus has asked them to do. Using the message of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, they begin to grow this community of Christ followers, which actually just explodes exponentially and, uh, and quickly becomes known as the way. And it's not for a little while that they start to be known as Christians, but they do use words like ecclesia, you know, the, the group of called out ones. The actual word that we use, church, comes from a different Greek word, kuriakon, which means uh, belonging to the Lord. And these words give us a hint of what the church actually is and what, what it means. But actually, the, it's still a very broad word with slightly different applications. For example, the church can be understood as local. So if I said uh, I'm going to go to church tomorrow, what I'm referring to is uh, the church congregation that I attend, Christchurch Manchester, Gorton, okay? Um, or you might refer to the church down the road or the church on the corner. 
You're referring there to a local congregation or more broadly, the local church. But the church can also be understood as universal. The church across the world, everybody who uh, refers to themselves as a believer in Christ, everyone who is a believer in Christ. That uh, another term for the universal church might be with a small c, the Catholic church. Another way of looking at this uh, broad application of the word church is that the church can be thought of as visible. That is the church as we see it. So uh, everybody that we know who's a Christian, all of the churches in our area, perhaps even all of the different churches in the world. But the church can also be understood as invisible. That is the church as God sees it. Everybody for whom Christ died, everybody whom God has saved. Church can mean my local congregation or everyone who believes in Jesus, or everyone who ever had true faith in God and who will enter God's kingdom, it can be a broad word. But let's have a few answers in the chat for this question, because I do think it's a very, very interesting one for us to think about. And like all of the other questions I've asked today that can be answered in the chat, there isn't necessarily one uh, perfect or right answer. When did the church start? Put your answers in the chat. When did the church start? A long time ago. Thanks, Andy. Pentecost, after Pentecost, Pentecost, when Jesus gathered his disciples, Acts. Yeah, keep going. Anybody else want to uh, give their thoughts? Anybody think perhaps differently about, about that? Or are, we, are we kind of agreeing on Acts and Pentecost as a general area for when the church started? When the kingdom of God arrived on earth, okay, after the ascension, okay, from the 12 disciples. Okay, Pentecost or back when Jesus breathed on the disciples. Okay, yeah, really, really interesting answers. I think, um, again, it's, there's not necessarily, because of the, the diverse uses of the word church, it's difficult to pin down an exact point where God started his church. Uh, did he uh, start the church at Pentecost or was it before creation, you know, uh, Paul said, didn't he, in Ephesians, as we read earlier, that he called us before the creation of the earth. That would be one of those roundabout answers. Did it start with the first human beings on the earth? Did it start with Abraham? Did it start with Peter, the one on whom uh, God said he would, uh, Jesus said he would build his church? Well, of course, it depends on what you mean by church. But as many of you have identified, the local church movement certainly began at Pentecost. The universal church, as in uh, all of the people for whom Christ died, well, that began, I suppose, when God's plan began, before creation. But one of the things we have to do when we're going to think about what the church is, is distinguish it from other collective entities in the Bible. It's important to have a rough idea of what the church is, for example, in relation to Israel. This is important because these things can sometimes be used interchangeably. But what the church is in relation to the people of Israel isn't the simplest of questions. But to just touch upon it, these two entities are different in that the Bible, uh, when the Bible refers to Israel, it generally means the physical descendants of Jacob. But as Paul goes into detail on Galatians 4 and 5, Anyone who believes in Christ is a spiritual descendant of Abraham and Sarah, that is, of the free woman. So in that sense, the church can be understood and is understood by many 
as the true Israel. But this can be a bit complex and confusing. Uh, and so the way that Wayne Gruden puts it in his systematic theology book, I think is really helpful. He says that the church or the true Israel is made up of everyone for whom Christ died in the Old Testament age and the New Testament age. Remember Ephesians 5 at verse 25 that we uh, whizzed past earlier, but we're going to focus on for just a second. Yes, it's talking about husbands and wives, but it's also talking about the church. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying himself down for her. A key verse, actually, for understanding the universal church made up of everyone for whom Christ died. And we know that God, in his wisdom, can save not only those who believed in Jesus, knowing that they believe in Jesus, as in New Testament believers, but also those who followed God in the Old Testament age too. Now, uh, the other entity that we have to get a rough idea of how the church relates is one that was mentioned in the chat just a moment ago, actually, and that is, of course, the kingdom of God. Are the church and the kingdom just interchangeable terms? Well, no, actually, there is a distinction. Even though there's a great bit, a uh, great uh, common ground between the two, these two are distinct because the church is present. And actually, generally, in the, in the Bible, the church is usually spoken about as something for this age. Don't get me wrong, of course, the church is the bride of Christ, who will be wed to Christ at the great wedding banquet, but actually the kingdom is the thing that is spoken of as now and not yet. And actually, most importantly, Jesus framed his entire ministry in terms of the kingdom of God, not the church. This isn't to say that the church isn't at the center of God's plan and all that he's doing. Of course it is. It's so important. This is God's plan for humanity. This is how God is growing uh, his worshipping people. This is how God is calling people to himself through the church. But Jesus framed his ministry in terms of the kingdom, which means the kingdom is an even bigger entity. The church can be thought of as the community of the kingdom. We try to be kingdom people living in ways which glorify God and creating kingdom culture. But the church is not necessarily the same as the kingdom. Well, with those things set aside, generally, as we talk about the church from here on, we are going to be thinking about the local church. Actually, that said, we're going to look at some metaphors for the church in just a moment, which will blur the lines a little bit between the whole church and the local church. But we're going to think for a moment now about the local church, and I'd like to call on you again to answer this question in the chat. Let's get as many things out there as we possibly can. What makes a church a church? Why don't you put as many, of, uh, as many answers as you can think of, feel free to write several into the chat. What makes a church a church? As you answer, let me um, add a, a few more um, kind of prompts for this. If you walked into a new church tomorrow, what would you expect to be the central elements of that church? Are all of the things which make a church a church present on a Sunday? Is there something which, if it was missing in the church service, for example, would set alarm bells ringing? What makes a church a church? Okay, um, a group of people coming together to worship Jesus, a congregation of worshippers, people. Simple, I like it. A group of people that come together to worship God and to declare his glory in the world. A family of believers who worship Christ and who look after each other. Bible teaching. Yeah, I'd be surprised if there was no Bible teaching in a church. 
definitely. Anything else? Any other elements that you would you'd want there to be if you attended New Church that would make it a church? Worship of God, preaching, fellowship between believers before and after, a family who prays together. Yeah, brilliant. Please do continue to type your answers. Prayer, worship, biblical teaching, the gospel, ministry to the poor, community outreach, pastoral care, communion, baptism. You know, there are all sorts of things that come to mind for me. The list goes on that I consider very important to what a church is. In fact, uh, right at the time of the Reformation, Luther and Calvin both said uh, what they believed were, would make a church kind of essentially the church. Luther said that uh, the church was where the, uh, the gospel was preached and the, uh, the sacraments administered. Of course, he meant uh, baptism and communion as the sacraments. Uh, Calvin, acts very similarly, but not quite the same, said that he believed um, the church was where the Bible was taught and the sacraments administered. Now, it's important to go back there simply because any Protestant congregation today um, owes kind of the way we do church to some degree to the Reformation. But actually what we have to remember is that both of those people were reacting to the overly complex seven sacraments of the Catholic Church and all of these different elements which were prized as ritualistic practices that had to be there if a church was going to be a church. And they were all about simplification. No, no, no. The church is where the Bible is taught and the sacraments administered. But actually, we do sometimes differ, don't we, on what we think is essential to church life. I think the church can meet with 4,000 people in a warehouse or with a family in a living room. I know people, particularly people with young kids, who needed to rethink church on Sundays during the pandemic. I know one family who started a new church in their living room with two parents, four kids, and the person that they were bubbled with, and they called it Respect Jesus Church. I don't know what kind of other things you might have seen happen over the last 18 months, or maybe just more generally different expressions of what the church is. Earlier in pretty much every question I asked, uh, people said things about uh, how it's all about Jesus. And I think the same can be true of the church. It's a, a community that centers around the worship of Jesus. From there, of course, we have things like uh, communion, where we remember the death of Jesus. Baptism, where we welcome people into the family of God as they profess their faith in Jesus. Uh, we have things like biblical teaching, which focuses on Jesus. We have the gospel. But there is another central element of the church which we can't ever forget or compromise on. And that is that it is God who builds his church. It's not us, it's God. Acts tells the story of the fastest exponential growth in the history of the church as 3,000 new believers come to faith after one sermon from Peter, taking the church from less than 100 people to about 3,100. But the author attributes it all to God. He says in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, we can spend hours planning our sermons, devote time and energy to hospitality, create a thriving missional outreach, look into new ways of doing church and preaching the gospel, but make no mistake, it is God who is building his church. On that note, let's have a look at the way the church is described in the New Testament. Bearing in mind that at this point in history, the church was pretty much brand new. 
at least the local church was, and, and still working out what it was. Now, these metaphors aren't always directly about something that is called the church, but they'll all be familiar to you. And they all describe the community of Christ believers that we now call the church. Well, you can see these on your handout, which I'm just going to get up before me as well. But these are different ways that the church is described in scripture. Okay, so the first of these, of course, one that we already touched on a little bit um, when we read Ephesians, which is the body of Christ. So this is a, um, this is, I suppose this is Paul's vision of the church as a, a church that's made up of different parts that work together for the glory of the head. The church is one living organism. Christ is its highest authority. I have a, a story about a time that my dad accidentally removed the head of a pheasant that was on the side of the road, which I won't go into any more detail about, except that the pheasant flapped around for ages as a headless pheasant. And the point is that I learned in that moment that a body is completely aimless and useless and chaotic without its head. And actually, that's what the body of Christ illustrates. Yes, it's about each part working together, but it's about the whole body working for the good and the glory of the head. And without the direction of the head, without the head having the highest authority, well, the body will be chaotic and in disarray. The whole function of the body is to grow into maturity under Christ, the head. The headship of Christ is so central to this metaphor and so central to what the church is. You know, we hear countless stories of abuses of leadership in churches, tragically. And there's a podcast that's all about this happening in one particular church that's very, very popular at the moment. But what we see here is that when a church has Christ as the highest authority and even the highest up leaders in that church submit to Christ, well, they can be protected against this kind of abuse of leadership. Well, let's move on to the second of these metaphors, the bride of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25, 27. Well, I read that already. That talks about how uh, husbands loving their wives and the relationship between husbands and wives is supposed to be an emulation of the way Christ loved the church. Well, this is a metaphor that's all about love primarily the love that Christ, the bridegroom in the metaphor, has for the bride, the church. Christ's love is exemplified in his laying down his life for the church and his cleansing of the church in order that she might be presented to him as blameless. And interestingly, this is a metaphor that isn't just present in Ephesians 5. Actually, it goes throughout the whole New Testament. You find it in Peter and you find it, of course, in Revelation as the church and Christ are reunited for the wedding banquet at the end. And the function of the bride, according to 2 Peter, is to prepare for the bridegroom's return by living lives. I thought Andy was going to jump in there, but maybe not. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, the next metaphor we've got six six to get through, but I'll just uh, I'll just get through these nice and swiftly. But in uh, in one Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, yeah Paul talks about the church as a building, and when Paul talks about a building, sometimes it, it quite easily turns into kind of temple imagery you know it, until uh, the time of Jesus the primary the primary place to worship God the center of Jewish worship was of course a temple but all of that changes with Jesus but Paul uses this metaphor to talk about the way the church grows 
He says in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Paul's illustrating the fact that the church is like a construction project, which is in process. That God is continually adding bricks to this construction project, building it as believers are added to its number. The church is where God chooses to dwell on earth amongst his people. The church uh, built upon the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone and in Christ the whole building is joined together. The next metaphor we'll spend a moment thinking about is the royal priesthood. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, this amazing metaphor for the people of God actually stresses two things. The first is the equality of its members, how everyone has the same, I don't know, rank, if you like, before God. Actually, there is something wonderful about the priesthood of all believers. We are all expected to minister as part of the church. But then there's also uh, something which comes from Israel's history, uh, which, is, which makes the church this distinct entity. Because in Israel, priests could only come from one tribe. They came from the tribe of Levi. And kings came from another tribe, almost exclusively from the tribe of Judah. Whereas in the church, this is really powerful because these two roles are combined. It shows that God is doing something new through his people, the church, that we can be a royal priesthood. But of course, in any priesthood, there's a high priest. And in uh, Hebrews chapter four, in one of the most beautiful, uh, I mean, Hebrews is a beautiful book of the Bible. But in this expression of who Jesus is, it speaks of him as our great high priest who, yes, he can uh, understand our weakness and all of those kinds of things, but he's the one who goes into the presence of God on our behalf so that we can enter God's presence with confidence. The royal priesthood with Christ as our head. In uh, the Gospels, Jesus talks about uh, the flock. He talks about sheep a lot. Uh, you know, most of the people Jesus spoke to were familiar with the farming culture of the time. So Jesus often used sheep uh, as a metaphor and and actually one of the ways that Jesus talks about the church the church that is to come the community of believers worshiping him is as a flock it illustrates Jesus as the good shepherd caring and guiding the church it brings to mind Psalm 23 and the way the um the way the, the good shepherd in that psalm causes the sheep to lie down and um, not only gives them what they need, but also uh, fills their cup to overflowing and does all these incredible things. And the function of the flock, well, it's actually quite a simple one. All, um, it's quite a simple one. All the sheep need to do is trust and follow the shepherd. Special responsibility, of course, for the church's leaders who are known as shepherds, pastors, is to shepherd the flock until Christ's return. And the final metaphor for the church that we'll think about for now is the vine and the branches. Once again, Jesus doesn't use the word church when he talks about this, but he talks about the essential nature of staying plugged into the source of life. Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, this illustrates that the church is united around a common source of life. But it's more than that. It warns us against the danger of a church becoming cut off from Christ, from the source. Forgetting that Christ is the source of all life and all that is good in the church. And so the function of the branches is to continuously remain attached to the source. Yes, to glorify God by producing good fruit, but to do this by drawing from the life-giving source that is Christ through the Holy Spirit. It is to stay plugged in to Christ. Well, there's been a whole host of uh, metaphors there for the church that we've had to think about. I encourage you to um, have a think about all of them as you go away from today and meditate on them. Think about how God is uh, speaking to you about what the church is and where, what your part is that you play in it through all of these various expressions of what the church is. We're going to go on uh, now to have a little think about um, the way the church is run and the way the church is led. I've seen that there's a question in the chat. That's great. I'll, um, I'll have a pause in, in a moment when we've got, um, we'll have a group discussion in just a couple of minutes. And during that time, I'll have a look at your question and get back to you on that. Let's think about the way the church is run, because um, what happened in the early church is you've got this amazing exponential growth of the church in the first few years. And the church starts in Jerusalem and people are joining and there's this mixture of people who um, were formerly Jewish and therefore understood a lot about uh, what the church was teaching. And people who, who weren't Jewish and were kind of new to this idea and didn't really know what it was all about. But what the disciples quickly realised is that the church needed some leadership. And actually, if the, the 12 and the, uh, the few more disciples who had kind of um, walked with Jesus and these people who were the original leaders of the church, if they were going to go out and make more churches, well, they needed some kind of model of what leadership was going to look like. There are different types of churches, but when a church reaches a certain size, particularly how it's run and governed becomes really important. And if a church wants to release its leaders to go and start a new church, well, again, it needs to, the, the previous one needs to be able to keep running. For things to work properly, strong leaders who in turn submit to the headship of Christ are necessary. In the New Testament, we see this happen in Acts and we see this uh, as a really important topic in the latest of Paul's letters, 1, 2, Timothy and Titus. In Acts, on several occasions after they plant the church, Paul and his companions elect elders and deacons in the congregations before they leave. This is because a church without a leader will struggle to be organised or to have any direction. And then in the pastoral epistles, 1, 2, Timothy and Titus, the situation that's reflected in these letters is that the church's leaders, including but not limited to Timothy and Titus, need direction on what kind of leaders the church needs. And then over the centuries, a number of models of church government have been born. And although I'm sure we all have our own preference, and that preference has probably determined the type of church you're part of now, there is biblical basis for all of them. There's key terminology that matters here. And I'll just mention a couple of words that you find in the New Testament, particularly in Acts and in 1, 2, Timothy and Titus. A couple of these words that describe different leaders in the early church and that are often used today um, to describe leaders in modern churches too. The first of these is the Greek word episkopos, which is where we get our word episcopal, 
which is a way to describe uh, well, the Anglican Church and um, sort of other affiliate churches as well across the world. Um, and this means overseer. So although this may have been used interchangeably with the word elder in the early church, it stresses the function of this, this kind of leader to oversee what's going on in the church community. The second important word is presbyteros, which means elder. And similar, perhaps, to the overseer role, this, uh, this idea of presbyteros stresses the maturity and the dignity of the office. Now, you can see a lot more detail on what Paul particularly expects of these types of leaders if you read the pastoral letters, 1, 2, Timothy and Titus. And the third uh, office, if you like, in church leadership that's mentioned in the Bible is a deacon, a diakonos, which um, sometimes is translated as minister, literally means servant, somebody who serves others. This is a position that's generally thought of as subordinate to elders or overseers, and it may have an emphasis, in fact it does have an emphasis, on the material and the pastoral care for congregation members. In fact, the first time we hear of deacons, it's in Acts chapter six. And what's happening is that the leaders of the church, the apostles, need to assign some people to be responsible for the care of the needy in their community. And so they assign people and they call them deacons. So you've got these offices in church, uh, in kind of the in church leadership. And then from here in church history, this is where we end up with our roughly, and I know that this isn't exact science, but roughly three different types of churches. Episcopal, which is just what it says on the tin. These are churches that are run by often quite a complex um, array of uh, overseers. And, and generally that word today and, and in the King James Bible is translated as bishop and so you've got churches like the Anglicans, the uh, Roman Catholic, the Methodists who have a, a, a um, kind of you know like a network of um, uh, bishops and deacons and all of that kind of thing. Now there is biblical basis for this type of church and um, Galatians 1 19 uh, chapter 2 verse 9 do you know what I could look all of those up now but I don't want uh, to run out of time. But there is, if you read the Bible and you look at all of the different ways church leadership is described, there's biblical basis for all of these. The second type of church is Presbyterian. Once again, it's born out of this uh, office of elder, generally a Presbyterian church. And in America, this is an official kind of, uh, and, and actually in Ireland and lots of other places, and there is a Presbyterian church of. But these apply to any church actually that has um, a body of elders who oversee what's going on in the church, including the church I'm a part of, Christ Church Manchester in Manchester. Um, yeah, that was in the name. Anyway, uh, there, there are different churches that take this form of um, government as well. And then finally, you've got congregational churches. Now, you might be thinking, actually, my church kind of fits on the margin between two of these. And that's OK. As I said, there's biblical basis for these different ways of doing church. But in a congregational church, the emphasis is that the entire local congregation has authority. There will often be a lot of democracy and a lot of voting, particularly in these churches, an emphasis on autonomy, no outside authority, and of course, democracy. And that goes back to the biblical idea of the priesthood of all believers, and therefore all believers having a say in what the church does next. Well, there are different um, 
biblical models of church. But what I'm interested in is uh, what you think is a biblical way of doing church. And for that reason, that's the question we're going to discuss for now for 10 minutes in, um, in our breakout rooms before we tackle the final part of uh, the doctrine of the church. What do you think is a biblical model of church? So just to be clear, I'm not asking you to pick one of the ones I just said. I'm not asking you to argue for why your church is the best way of doing church necessarily, although you may have really strong views on uh, the best way of doing church. But thinking about everything that we've discussed already this morning, what do you think is a biblical model of doing church? And discuss that for 10 minutes in breakout rooms. Shall we get a little bit of feedback on that question? And then we've just got one more thing to talk about before the end of our session. Um, anybody want to say what they what their group spoke about biblical model of church yeah I, I think we just decided whatever works as long as it's got sound teaching and worship but that how it works it doesn't matter as long as you're getting something out of it and we think diversity is a good thing that you know that model what might work for some people where women, one of the things we talked about was women where women preach but some people might not like it so it doesn't matter if there's another church over here that doesn't have women preaching because if that fits and they're getting biblical teaching and they're getting close to God it doesn't matter mm. but uh, I mean I'm just using that as an example but there could be lots of other varieties where you don't like this you like a quiet church a noisy church whatever it is I think it's good that we've got a variety as long as people are in church does it matter if you know as long as it's sound does it matter about the different denominations and all that stuff mm. that's why I want yeah thanks Rachel so it sounds like a um a few a few really important a few really important things uh, at the center and beyond that different expressions are good yeah it's um, cool okay yeah uh, anybody else i know carol go for it uh, i was in the same group as rachel and we talked about all three models being um theologically biblically sound um so again it, it depends where you're where you feel at home i suppose in in those three models yeah and the other thing that we talked about was maturity um you, you know that the maturity um, being able to accept all of those different ways is a is a demonstration of maturity mm. okay yeah Thank you. the balance like you need you need to have people that understand the church making decisions but also um you need to have that like accountability and community with other churches as well mm. um yeah so it needs to be a balance really between the two yeah yeah, thanks, Becca. I know the people were queuing up to answer this question. Was there anybody else who wanted to jump in? Um, I was in Becca's group as well. We were just saying um, that we quite liked the approach where, like, there would be um, a group of kind of elders making decisions rather than everybody, otherwise nothing ever gets done. Um, but those kind of people making the decisions need to obviously be trustworthy and hold each other to account as well. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I think leaders being held to account is so important and actually what somebody mentioned about uh, something to do with leaders um, perhaps knowing leaders from other churches and working with leaders from other churches that becomes really important when leaders uh, think to themselves ah who do I go to when I'm struggling and actually the answer might not be your congregation members and that might not be appropriate but actually if you've got a network of other leaders who you can go to for support then that can really help leaders to to thrive and, and not struggle and that kind of thing. So um, all really helpful perspectives. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, 
yeah, thanks for all your engagement with these questions uh, this morning and the discussion. I hope that you've got lots from it. Um, I'm just going to uh, go through the final element of the doctrine of the church that I've got prepared this morning, um, which will just be a few more minutes and then we'll we'll draw to a close. And, and I'm happy to stick around if anybody's got any questions at the end. Um, ah, there was a before I before I do finish this, somebody asked a question earlier, um, which I thought was, was really great. And it might be one for us all to sort of go away and think about rather than for me to completely answer. But I'll, I'll throw it out there anyway. Someone said, is Christ's mission and his passion to build his church? Or does he build his church to help fulfill his mission and passion? I think it's a really interesting question. And I don't know whether I can. I mean, part of me wants to say, I think I think both. But I know that's not necessarily the, the helpful answer that, uh, that you wanted. But I think when I think of Christ's mission and his passion, I think of uh, Hebrews 12 and the, the joy for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And I think of Christ's incredible passion as he laid down his life for the church, for the people he loves and for the church. And I, I am. So I think uh, Christ's mission and passion is to lay down his life for the church, of course, ultimately for the glory of God. Um, and he builds this church. He builds his church, I suppose, to be the outworking of uh, of that. But I, I, I would probably err towards the first one, perhaps Christ's mission and his passion is to build his church because Christ's mission and his passion was to lay down his life for the church. Um, just my thoughts on that great question, um, but I'll, I'll proceed now to do the, just the final part of the, of the teaching from this morning. Uh, any more questions, do feel free to ask them at the end or put them in the chat. Um, the final page of your handout uh, is, a, is a Venn diagram of the ministries of the church. Now, um, I think Venn diagram is the right one. Somebody correct me if that's not the right type of diagram. I think it is the overlapping circles. Anyway, um, I'm suddenly doubting myself. Anyway, um, the, the final question I want to think about is what does the church do? Uh, we, we agree that the church does ministry. Everything that the church does can be considered ministry, which literally means serving or service. But who does the church exist to serve? See, people, uh, big church leaders, for example, will often make big claims about who the church exists for as part of their church's mission statement. Now, these things can often be really catchy phrases. Like the other day, I heard a quote from Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church in the USA, which is huge. And he said, the whole point of the church, uh, the whole point of the church is here is to learn to love and teach others to love. If you're not doing that, you're missing the point. Now, I get what he was saying. His statement would imply that the church's ministry should be entirely focused on people, people inside and outside the church and, and loving those people. Right. OK. Uh, a theologian named James H. Augie said, and you might have heard a, a kind of a condensed version of this quote, that he said, the church is not a select circle of the immaculate, but a home where the outcast may come in. It is not a palace with gate attendants and challenging sentinels along the entranceways, holding off at arm's length the stranger, but rather a hospital where the brokenhearted may be healed and where all the weary and troubled may find rest and take counsel together. Well, that's beautiful, isn't it? A little bit like what Rick Warren was saying. There's a focus on the church's ministry being, again, towards people, specifically people outside and inside the church who are broken and hurting 
The church should be the place those people can come and feel welcome despite their hurt. William Tyndale, the Bible translator, put it this way. The church is the one institution which exists for those outside it. But is this all that the church exists for? Is it just for people reaching out to people and supporting people? Or actually, is there more to it? Duncan Campbell said the kingdom of God is not going to be advanced by our church becoming filled with people, but by people in our churches becoming filled with God. So is the church all about its members becoming closer to God or about worshipping God? Well, it's clear, isn't it, that the ministries of the church can't quite be pinned down by any one sentence statement from a great preacher. Biblically, the church should have a balanced focus between ministry to God, worship, ministry to the body. So taking care and teaching and helping to mature those within the church and ministry to the world around them. You know, every church will focus more on one or more on two than on the others of these three things, but they're all important. And the focus of a church on one of these ministries will always be reflected in its culture. And you know what? I think that's okay. We're not perfect. And balancing all three perfectly is very tough, but all three are important. What happens when a church focuses entirely on its ministry to God and its ministry to the body? Well, it never grows if there's no ministry to the world. What happens when a church focuses entirely on evangelism, but gives no time and energy to ministry to the body? Well, you end up with a church that's full of people, but with nobody who's capable of being a leader or a mature believer. And what about when a church is focused on evangelism and pastoral ministry, but neglects the worship of God? Well, it's like the vine that we talked about earlier. It's like the church unplugging itself from the source of life. And eventually, it will run out of steam. Well, the, I would encourage you, and we're not going to do it now because we are pretty much out of time, but I would encourage you to go away and have a think about this question. How does your church balance these three aspects of ministry? What does it do to serve God, the body, and the world? Maybe you would want to have a look at that Venn diagram on the handout and maybe fill in the various kind of um, activities and components that your church does, the things that your church prioritises is important, and work out which of those ministries they're fulfilling. Say, so, okay, we take communion. What does that do? Who does that serve? Does it church uh, serve the world? Does it serve the, the church or does it serve God? And then you could do that with all sorts of other things. I would encourage you to have a think about that as you go away. But that pretty much brings me to the end of everything I prepared to share with you uh, this morning. And it's happened in quite a timely fashion. It's just gone 12 o'clock. Um, so I, I'm happy to stay around for a little bit um, if you've got any questions. But that is officially the end of what I've got to say. Thanks so much for having me.